Thank you so much for tuning in to our second episode of A Simeo Decoded, a podcast where we do our best to bring you some incredible stories about how data and technology are being used to do good in the world. So, And we have a robot. And we have, Aaron will not let us forget. <laughs> Neo. We'll hear from Neo a little bit later. We are super excited about our interview today. We're going to be talking with uh, Waldo Michaels Carrasco, who is the uh, co-director of Data Across Sectors for Health. He's with the Illinois Public Health Institute. Um, we have a good intro for him once we dive into the interview, and we'll let him introduce himself. Um, but we've had just a really wonderful opportunity to work with Dash uh, over the years. In fact, Dash was the grantor for a one of our very early prototypes of our privacy-enhancing technology platform, Spotlight, which we talked about in our last episode. We are working with Dash right now and helping them create a knowledge base just to share and communicate out all the best practices that they have been collecting and learning about over the years since they've been a program. Um, they're pretty amazing partners, so... Absolutely. We're very honored to hear from him today and to go on uh, a number of different conversational paths. And we're excited for you all to hear from, from Waldo as well. Uh, and one of yeah. the uh, little known fact that our viewers might not know is Jeff James from the first episode of our podcast actually partnered with us, Restore Hope. And um, we utilized those dollars from Dash, those innovation dollars, to test drive our privacy-enhancing platform, which is now in multiple communities across the United States and making it easier to share data while keeping the PII mm -hmm. private. Nice crossover episode. Exactly. We didn't do that intentionally, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> Unintentional coolness is kind of our jam. Because if you try to be intentionally cool, are you cool? Oh, I don't know. It's like this the tree in the forest thing. Like, you know, because if a tree falls in the forest and like, are you cool still? <laughs> Is that not how it goes? Okay. <laughs> I think that's pretty close, actually. That's pretty great. Um, something, okay, so I love this because as we were kind of doing a little bit of preparation for this episode and uh, we were, I was talking with Aaron and Fatima, different Aaron, that gets confusing. Um, and we were talking about some different themes for our conversation and identity was one that came up. Yeah. And we didn't actually share this with Waldo. It naturally came up. So that's just pretty interesting in and of itself, but this idea of identity and in so many different ways. And there, mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before is we've thought about, you know, ways to talk about what we do and how identity is a part of that, whether you're just talking about something very tactical, like who is an individual within a given data set. If you talk about identity within a community, identity itself, there's all this philosophical yeah. uh, direction you can go down, which is your jam and your territory. Who are you? I feel like Indeed. I feel like when you go that direction, I feel very much like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland, being like, "Who are you?" Like identity can just spiral <laughs> out and be a conversation all the time. Oh yeah, some podcast absolutely. That's cool. Can I be Alice? That's fun. If I can be the caterpillar, you can be the caterpillar. <laughs> I have to get a hookah. Like, I don't know what the caterpillar's smoking, okay? We may not be true to form there. Uh, like, we'll just, like, maybe I'll be the cat. That might be better. The cat. Yeah, I'll just have cat. to learn how to disappear. But There was a Cheshire cat moon last night. Ooh. It's very cool. So one thing that we do need to do, which we love to do, you brought up Neo at the beginning, is to 
ask Mio a couple of questions so that we can get some insight and recommendations for our interview with Waldo. I want to get Mio's thoughts on that. So Mio, actually, do you want to ask Mio? Yeah, I'd love to. Mio, wake up, Mio. Mio, Mio. It's not like Alexa where you say say its name and it wakes up. Okay. Mio, what do you want to know about Waldo? Some of the things I'd like to know about Waldo include his motivations for joining IPHIN Dash, what he sees as the most pressing issues facing public health today, and how he plans to use his experience and expertise to help address those issues. Oh, once again, I'm just saying, yeah. (laughs) How long are we going to be the host of this podcast before Mio (laughs) takes over? (laughs) Maybe that's all we'll do. Mio will take care of the rest. I know, right? (laughs) Mio, what's a fun fact about Waldo? A fun fact about Waldo is that he is a skilled cultural competency trainer. He has provided training for municipalities, state organizations, boards, and commissions in their quest to engage historically excluded communities as advocates to reduce barriers and and disparities for all. Pretty awesome, Mia. That is pretty awesome. Good questions. Great questions. And more good questions to come in the interview as well. So... Y'all, we hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. And thank you again to Waldo, who agreed to spend a good chunk of his afternoon with us today. Thank you for taking some time, though, to join us today. We're really excited. And as you can see just from the intro, and as Aaron said, super informal, just a conversation. So we'll go, and I think I said this in my email too, but we will have plenty of meandering rabbit trails. We can go wherever we want in this conversation. Um, But... I did want to start and just give you an opportunity to introduce yourself however you want to. Through interpretive uh, dance, preferably. Is this an audio? This is, uh, how does that look on audio? I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, well, well, what happens is you dance <laughs> yeah. and I explain your movements. Oh, okay. yes. do, oh he's pirouetting now, folks. Uh-huh. I think you should start with your, your ham radio handle, which I think we established was a thing. Uh, heavy wham car is, uh, no. Um, <clears throat> so Waldo Michaels Carrasco and I am, um, let's get, let's get into all the, right. So I'm the, the director of the center for health information, sharing and innovation at the Illinois public health Institute. We are a, uh, co program office for Data Across Sectors for Health, an initiative funded through generously through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we do that in partnership with the Michigan Public Health Institute, where there is another co-director of DASH. So I am the director of the Center for Health Information Sharing and Innovation and a co-director of DASH. I also wear a size 11 shoe in case anybody's sending you know, gifts. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a 10 and a half, so I could wear your shoes. I'd be, be a bit, little bit of a room there. But I feel like we like our acronyms in this space, too. Yes, we, do. we like our acronyms. And, and, and when I was in the private sector, it was funny. People didn't have five different roles with three different organizations. But in this space, it's like you meet someone, it takes five minutes to even talk about it. So I, to me, that just means that there's a lot of time, energy, and motivation to make the world a better place. So thanks for all your dedication, Waldo. And 
collaboration too, yeah. right? Which I think is a sort of central tenet for Dash, of course, but also some of the work at the center too. Um, and that's fantastic. And that's what we see too, like in a lot of our work. Um, Walter, I'd be really curious, you know, on your on your resume, right? You describe yourself as an applied social scientist. Um, so you are not a traditional technologist. And I'm curious because through so much of the work that we've done together and um, in our conversations, case in point, just even this intro conversation, you have a really deep appreciation for and an understanding of some of the nuance of creating software and using technology. And I'm curious, like, how did that, how did that come to be? Was that always there or was it something you picked up along the way? Or how did you start to, to really gain that appreciation? Yeah, so um, uh, this uh, rabbit hole, number one into the rabbit hole. Uh, in, uh, in 2002, I joined a Catholic religious men's order, uh, the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, as they're known. And I spent five years uh, in uh, formation to eventually not become a Jesuit priest. Uh, I, I felt very called to that life. I was very involved in social justice um, and and felt very called to um, you know, work to alleviate suffering where, where possible in the world. And, um, so this is going to be a really long answer. I'm just, I'm telling you right now. Um, <laughs> and I love, I'm yeah, loving it already. Okay. Waldo, I'm going to, I'm going to pregame the next part of this conversation. I studied <laughs> up a little on Jesuits last night. Get out of town. All right. Not even joking. All right. Well, I'll, we can, we can talk Christology in the next segment. Um, so I, uh, a lot of the work that I, that, that, that I started out to do, which is, you know, very typical for this kind of vocation was, uh, to work directly with communities. I, I, I felt, you know, my parents are Cuban refugees. We grew up, uh, <laughs> literally at the first place that they stayed when they got here, they were sleeping on the floor until they could get jobs in factories and afford to buy the furniture. The first piece of furniture they bought was a uh, a dining table with no chairs because it was in San Diego, California, and they were afraid of earthquakes. So everybody slept under the table. Uh, wow! So I I'm, I was very familiar with the plight of you know immigrants and and um, you know low income families and people who were under resourced. Um, I had not you know I I kind of grew up uh, moving further and further away from that and. Um, I got to, you know, that particular point in my life and I was like, you know, this is, this is what I feel strongly called to do. Um, but as I, as I started trying to look at that work, I, you know, you look at human suffering <clears throat> and in a very immediate, uh, incarnate sense like that. And you, uh, you want to help, you want to do, you know, you want to feed that person you want to <laughs> help them find a place to stay tonight and get them some clothes and everything. But then you realize, wow, this person is, uh, you know, I'm still hungry. This person, uh, that's the one shirt that they have. That's, you start thinking like, so what, how, there's gotta be a better way to do it. Why does, why is this system not working? <laughs> why don't they have enough stuff? Do, do we, can we get more stuff to get them more stuff? And, and, and then eventually it's like, well, um, this micro approach, this hands-on immediate approach is, uh, it's less than the Band-Aid solution. This is just, you know, you've, you basically just thrown some water on the wound. You haven't even covered it with anything yet. Um, 
and the, well, let's get more, you know, let's do some fundraising and get more supplies and that way we'll have more stuff to give them is, is really, that's the bandaid for me, right? That mezzo. Um, and I, I had thought, you know, I'm going to go into social work and, and I'll, you know, I'll do these things that'll help people. And, but the thing is that you're working broken systems and oftentimes systems that are uh, intentionally designed to limit or alienate or, you know, make it hard for people to get help. Uh, And particularly for some people because of their skin color or their backgrounds or, you know, their, their economic or or social status uh, to be limited. So I, um, <laughs> I was this close and that's, uh, for all you listeners out there, it's three quarters of an inch. It's not even a whole inch. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was, I was that close to pursuing a macro policy, social work degree. Uh, and because it was, it, it's, these are systems. These are, these are problems that exist uh, in design and uh, in interaction, um, and uh, but what you know, the more I looked at this, and the more I considered it, and the more I, I tried to figure out how do I interact with this, how do I, what can I do to bring anything to this, I kept falling back on my own identity and who I was, and how, you know that kid, that child of Cuban refugees lived growing up in San Diego, California. And later in Miami, I, you know, that's what, that's how I saw the situation. And my perspective was different from a lot of other people's. Everybody in a phenomenological sense, of course, has their own experience of any given kind of Rashman uh, situation. But, um, you know, to me, mine is very particular, very specific. So I, I made a shift intentionally and moved away from social work frameworks of kind of you know, of uh, asset-based kind of approaches to more of a social science frame. And I, and I literally <laughs> changed programs in school and moved over to social science. And I, um, I, I focused on anthropology because of the, not just the, the cultural aspect to it that really aligned well with liberation theology that I'd studied, you know, in the Jesuits and I was very attracted to, but also my own cultural identity and the fact that I recognize that there are these identities, you know, of, of, of gender and race and ethnicity um, that, it, that exist, that they're real things that, that you know, kind of uh, explain to people how they should move through the world or what decisions they should make. Um, and I, uh, I increasingly, you know, followed that path. I found myself um, leaving the, the Jesuits to, to um, because I felt I was being called to um, not do that, you know, uh, to do to to live in the world and have a family and and continue this work in a way that was more. Uh, my way. And that drew me to work um, at the Institute for Latino Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, there, working as a researcher, I looked at all these different aspects that that affected, um, I mean, in a a bigger sense, you know, affected 
all kinds of these same you know groups that that I had looked at, but specifically the impact that they had on 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 Latino immigrants in the United States and Latino communities, the Latinx communities that we refer to them these days. That was a while back. We didn't have we didn't have access back then. Um, but uh, uh, as you know, as we looked at these things, uh, increasingly, um, certainly education and and you know workforce development and employment and you know transportation uh you know status immigration status and documentation but health seemed to be kind of key to this because of you know the the latino health paradox is you know what we used to refer to that it, by and large all immigrants come to the united states certainly latinos you know do this as well but they come to the united states uh in better health and the longer they stay here, the and become more American, the worse their health outcomes become. Um, or in some cases, the more aligned to the average American's health outcomes they become. So as I looked at those things, as I tried to like, you know, use anthropology and and um, in medical anthropology particularly to make sense of it, right? So so not make sense of it from the outside in, but make sense of it from the inside out, from the perspective of the people that experience this. How are you, you know, why are you making the decisions that you make? Why do you feel pulled to this or pulled away from that? Um, and that uh, <laughs> perspective actually pushes me in, towards uh, working and pursuing more work uh, in what would later be called translational research. Um, I uh, took position at the university uh, with the uh, Indiana uh, Translational Sciences, uh, the Clinical Translational Sciences Institute, sorry, the CTSI. There's an acronym for you. Um, See, we love our I know acronyms. you do. We should just start keeping track of them on a board behind, because there's, there's going to be a ton of them by the time we're done, right? <laughs> um, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of the translational stuff was happening from the, the, the research bench to the bedside. And, the, and there's supposed to be some feedback back again to make that, that translation more effective, more impactful. And uh, a lot of that patient voice is being lost. And a lot of the community voice is being lost, especially when, they, um, when the interventions were population-based or... Uh, you know, some kind of sample base or where they, they were focused on a specific population as opposed to a geographic population. And that just seemed like a sweet spot to me. This is all my skills, all my training, all my background. It's right there. It's right in front of me. Um, as uh, I increasingly did more work with more collaborating researchers, um, a lot of them were doing, were taking advantage of uh, innovations uh, an advance in in you know web and mobile uh, mobile health, and just the ability to kind of move to gather data from you know individuals from you know wearables and and mobile devices, but also for individuals to be able to access additional and new resources from laptop computers and tablets and phones in a way that you know had was never really uh, available. And the fact that there was a lot of work that could be done with folks entering their own information interactively online 
um, really kind of opened something up. But what it also opened up was a massive can, uh, can of worms of what's ethical to do and what's the right thing to do. And does the, like, does the thing that will work on, you know, the vast majority uh, of, uh, of heart disease research was done for decades on older white men. And that's because it, the understanding was that older white men were the ones who had heart disease. The only reason that that was <laughs> the consensus was because they never studied women. And what they would come to find out is the women have occurrences, at, uh, you know, as high as men, and in some cases, in certain segments at higher rates. It just, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, you can't, um, you can't measure what, don't, you can't change what you don't measure, right? Um, so I don't remember who answered, who asked the question, but the, the, the way I was, the way I was kind of guided towards bringing a social science perspective to this work and specifically as it has to do with information systems is that not everybody uses data the same way. Not all communities experience problems the same way. And data, the same data could be taken by government, by health systems, by educators for the same community and the community itself that all those things are supposed to be serving, maybe experiencing and interpreting that data in a very different way and reprioritizing it in a way that maybe some of those other governmental and institutional actors don't. So we have to, you know, the idea that that information systems have to be uh, not nimble to change as much as be uh, inclusive and be able to say, this may be objectively the data, but the interpretations uh, aren't weighted when, just because the funder uh, has this interpretation. That doesn't make it more important in the community. If anything, um, all those actors are there to serve the community. So if anything, the community's voice should be higher and weighted higher. I don't know if that answers anything. That's just a bunch of words there. Well, though, I feel like I could talk with you for hours over coffee or wine or whatever. Whatever's in that um, glass. About right so, many, <laughs> so many things. One, though, did you know that Georgetown was founded by Jesuits? No. Yeah, it was. And one of the things that I, so I've had kind of this, um, I don't know much about Jesuits. Like, let me just start there. But every time I've interacted with someone who's had, had a history, the things they're talking about that are part of the culture of philosophy are things that resonate very highly with me. It's things like education and service and things like that. And so yesterday, last night, I was reading a little. And so while I'd love to hear how accurate this is, but apparently the initial founding group of initial Jesuits uh, were really big on, in their educational practices, like, you know, being very close with the students. And the student-teacher relationship was really much more customized and curated in a sense that they were working closer with community, not just up on high, like teaching at. Like, Waldo, I'm just curious, uh, that random fact there, if that's accurate in your experience or not. Um, yeah, so the First Companions, uh, as they, the, the you know, the original band, um, <laughs> the, OG the OG Jesuits. Jesuits. OGJ. <laughs> were, uh, you know, they, they founded several 
universities, some of the oldest universities in Europe, uh, either, either they attended there or they would go on to, to create those. And yeah, you know, they did, um, gravitate towards the center of power in a nation state or in a big city, but, and, and, in, and, and did so intentionally to have, you know, the children of the powerful attend their schools, but not to indoctrinate them, but rather to, you know, connect with them and teach them how to be people for others, which is a very Jesuitical kind of idea. Ignatian, uh, Ignatius of Loyola was the founder of the order. And that's a very Ignatian idea to be. The other thing uh, we talk all the time, people are constantly going off on, you know, yoga retreats or corporate retreats. And the whole idea of the spiritual retreat actually comes, um, it, 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 there are several people who did variations on it, but uh, one of the most popular formats for it was actually developed by Ignatius uh, and, and, you know, shared with the the first companions, and they in turn used it in everything they they did. The whole idea of introducing you know a long period of quiet and retreat from the world to discern something right that anything that is important should be discerned in a as as a, a, a removed way and quiet way as possible. And, uh, oftentimes, you know, we talk about retreats as just, I'm just going to go sleep <laughs> or we just spend a few days kind of, you know, sharing our feelings with each other. And that's all legitimate, but, uh, the idea of discerning what's the, you know, what should I do about this? What am I being called to do about this? And, and that idea kind of uh, is very, it's a, it's a big event and it sounds like you're making a big, big decision about a big issue, but it also introduces quieter and smaller daily reflections about what am I, what am I getting ready to do in the world? What am, you know, what have I, you know, what have I done today? What could I have done better? And when you, you know, it, it, it's, you, you can say that there maybe is a more, uh, you know, um, closer relationship that maybe, you know, Jesuit trained educators had with their, with their students. But the truth is what you're, 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 in, you're inviting them in to, a um, you know, a, 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 a deeper sense of exploration about who they are and what their place is going to be in the world and not in some big grants, but like in the next five minutes, like you're going, you, you know, th you see this person and they're clearly upset. Do you walk by? Do you say something? Do you smile at least? You know what? You know, not situational awareness, but human, you know, human awareness. And that is, that is, that's kind of, I think the sense of maybe what you're, you're, you're describing there. I, I think so. Like, I mean, even where, where we're situated in Tulsa, there's a lot of, traffic that has a lot of different diversity of different socioeconomic classes and different places in life where people are, are, um, you know, often struggling with different things and even coming in to the office, I always make a concerted effort to just be human, you know, not to, to not let those things separate us and smile, say hello, et, et cetera. 
Um, one of the other things that you said that just resonated anecdotally is it was really interesting because there was this, this um, kind of process of when Americans who were serving together in the Peace Corps like went into the new country. So I was with a group in Kazakhstan. Then we all to achieve lost like 15 or 20 pounds. I mean, we just slimmed down immediately. And then when you were coming back in the United States, we all just like gained back this way. And I don't know what it, if it was just anecdotal, if I don't know, there's no research about that, but it was a lot of us were, you know, hypothetically talking about it being processed foods or something. Well, that is a, that's a really good segue because that was kind of related to one of my questions. Well, then when you were talking about the health paradox and that immigrants who come here end up having like they like worse health outcomes than they had coming in. And then they become on par with most Americans, which is not surprising. It's disappointing. Um, kind of two thoughts on that, like uh, for, I think you and I had a similar journey and going from a very health focused, you know, HIE background, and then coming into a more social determinants, more holistic focused space. And, um, you know, I'm curious, like, what, what are your thoughts on why, and this is a total rabbit trail, but wh why do you think that the health outcomes in America are so much worse? I mean, you would. Yeah. So that's an easy, that's a, that's a <laughs> softball, Jess. Softball question. We're, we're, we're early in, uh, in the game here. Uh, no. So, so first off, let me just, let me just complete the, the paradox because it isn't just that they come on par with average Americans, but they're, the, their outcomes continue to, to, to deteriorate where they have worse outcomes. And, and so um, from us, so we, in a lot of the work that we do, we talk about this, the the framework, the idea of social determinants of health, that that there are these social uh, factors that act on or limit our ability to thrive and be the healthiest people we can. Um, many of those things are based on, you know, income or the neighborhood we were born into, the social networks that our parents have access to. Um, you know, uh, educational attainment of our parents or our ability, uh, you know, to attain ourselves, uh, transportation, uh, you know, everything, just every social aspect, institution, social sector, uh, you know, the kind of home you grow up in, right? If you are, if you live in a really poor part of town and they put up a coal fire, uh, firing power plant near you, all of a sudden, all those houses, all the children there get asthma. You know, it's no big, and that affects you for the rest of your life, right? And that had everything to do with your housing and where your house was located growing up, right? So, you know, all these factors act on all of us. And when you have people who come from, you know, cultures or, or, or countries where they walk more, they don't have cars, right? Or they take more public transportation, so they're trying to get... The, to these places and back, um, they don't have, you know, cable TV and 10,000 apps and eight types of computers and laptops and, uh, you know, uh, 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 tablets and, and phones, you know, that they're actually doing more things. They're, they're reading, they're walking, they're talking to people, they're social, you know, they're acting, uh, interacting socially. So they're, um, they're, they're physical, they're emotional, they're psychological, uh, uh, status is better 
in 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 many cases, and in, in many even even in places, uh, you know, in in the global south or you know the emerging economies, however you want to use you know the frame, uh, they you know they may not have as many processed foods because they don't have as many import choices. Now, increasingly, we used to say this about Mexico, like the Latino health paradox, particularly talked about. Uh, you know, the immigration from Mexico and a lot of people that just, you know, grew up walking and doing more harder work and they had access to fresher, more local foods that were less processed. And because of, you know, NAFTA and things, I don't know if anybody remembers what NAFTA is, but, you know, trade agreements that forced nations to buy American goods, all of a sudden kids had access to all this stuff and they, now we have childhood diabetes as bad in Mexico as we do in the United States. Um, but, or in many cases <laughs> worse, but, um, but all those things, you know, affected it and, and all those economic factors affected, affect that paradox, but they also affect the way you, you know, your second part uh, or your main question there is that when, um, when, when we don't have access to healthcare or to quality healthcare, when we don't have access to insurance, which doesn't give us access to healthcare. Um, when we don't have uh, or, or even if we have access to healthcare, and this this is a prime example uh, in immigrant communities and low income communities, um, is somebody actually fine? They get insurance, and then they get in to see somebody at a federally qualified health center or a, you know a community health center, and uh, and the physician says, you know, you gotta, you're not in great shape. You need to lose some weight. Okay, you gotta eat better, eat fresh foods. Eat whole grains, uh, and and sleep. You got to sleep more. You're not sleeping. You know, you're up. All you, you, you look horrible. You, you you know we got your blood tests, and you're you know you need to take care of yourself. More exercise, better sleep, eat better, lose some weight. See in a year, and that person goes back to their <laughs> um, you know unsafe neighborhood where they don't feel safe going outside, much less going for a walk or a run. Um, in the in the nighttime, and if they go to a you know even if they do attempt it, the sidewalks have not been well cared for. There's it, people are walking down the middle of the street because it's not, they don't feel safe on the sidewalks, and then you know that just seems like an unsafe place to be walking around. They don't feel you know they have to keep uh, if they have a bicycle they want to keep it inside the apartment because they don't you know it's the neighbor they don't feel safe in the neighborhood to do that recommended exercise so unless they figure something out inside of the, the um they are in a low-income neighborhood where um grocery stores have decided to pull out of and not make investments in the only places that they can get some access to food where they can walk or that it's near them on on you know easily in their commute is a convenience store, a gas station. And they have, and those folks have limited amounts of fresh foods and certainly not whole grain foods or varieties of whole grain, pasta and bread. And, you know, so you're not eating just the same, you know, whole wheat crackers, three meals a day. Um, and certainly they don't have, you know, access to fresh fish or lean meats, uh, vegetables, you know, fruits. Um, so it's very hard to follow the recommendations that someone who is in a, who comes from a, a better neighborhood or a neighborhood that's been invested into by the local economy 
you know, they just have all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, additional or, or, um, a broader variety of options to be healthy than someone, you know, from a a low income neighborhood or an immigrant neighborhood does. So those are the types of things that begin to, you know, impact that add on to that, you know, that we talked about briefly about, you know, housing, but even, you know, when it comes to low income neighborhoods that haven't been, uh, that haven't had housing renovated or, or built in, in decades, uh, anything, any home built before 1978, in the United States probably has lead in it. So small children growing up in that environment are going to be exposed to uh, lead poisoning. Indoor air quality is often, you know, problematic in those in those ventilation systems if they have them. Um, broken, you know, just you know, broken steps, sidewalks, where where injuries occur, uh, it, they're usually. They don't provide a lot of transportation to those areas. So getting to a job that would get you out of that neighborhood is, you know, problematic. Um, so uh, I, I, if we have three more hours, I can keep going with the examples. But I think that you get the the gist of some of the issues. And as somebody who's working at the systems level, you know, where do you see the biggest opera, like where have you seen successes, you know, cause there's a lot of understanding and I feel like we had to get to this point to even acknowledge that there are the social determinants of health and yeah. the Robert Wood Johnson foundation has been instrumental in helping create and fund, you know, opportunities to increase awareness, you know, and, um, but I'm, I'm just curious, you know, where is it, where, where do you see the biggest, or where have you seen the needle move the most? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that we've gone through, um, phases uh as a as a nation as a society where some things have been um you know kind of universally recognized at the same time in the from the american zeitgeist like childhood obesity because you know so somebody jumps out a celebrity voice right <laughs> again going back to the earlier discussion on you know where does technology come into this? Well, you know, the social media and, um, you know, cable television, when, when Ted Turner creates TBS, uh, and, and puts that on and, and puts a 24 hour news station in CNN on, on, it makes it available to homes. All of a sudden you have the ability to get all this information out over and over again, constantly to people. And, you know, messages get strongly reinforced. You add the advent of the internet and then social media and mobile devices to that. And, and celebrity voices can like, just, you know, I, I, (laughs) we just got through the pandemic. Well, we got through the pandemic. We're still in the middle of this pandemic. And I'm, and I can't, and I still hear Jenny McCarthy uh, saying the kids shouldn't be vaccinated because, you know, it gives them autism back, you know, 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago. Um, those, th- those types of things, right. Are kind of this reinforcing messaging that, that either puts, either promotes an idea or causes, uh, you know, people to question the, the you know, the science <laughs> behind what we're trying to do. Um, but every, uh, Every community actually experiences things differently. So, you know, we have 
you know, uh, an example is infant mortality in the United States. We have a massive health disparity. We've had a mass, massive health disparity in the United States in infant mortality and now in maternal mortality uh, for decades. And it it has gotten a little bit better sometimes, you know, but it doesn't happen uniformly across the country, right? So, so we have this messaging that goes out that, you know, that kind of gets everywhere, but the, but crisis is, is local. Unless, unlike the pandemic, which is a pandemic, so it happened everywhere, but it happened in different places at different times. And certainly certain places had far worse outcomes and exposures than other places did. But, um, you know, in, in certain places, infant mortality or opioid use, uh, I'm looking at the Midwest, uh, was occurred at a, a high, much higher rate per 100,000. So it impacted populations in certain areas far worse than in areas that had you know, either greater diversity or a larger population. Um, and, and, and so that kind of crisis is, is local. And so the priorities are going to be local, which again, goes back to reinforce the earlier point of this is why it's important that communities get a say in what's going on, because if they don't, um, we've seen this all too often too. There's this great evidence-based program that occurred that was a, they did it at, uh, Children's Hospital of, of Philadelphia, and we're going to bring that CHOP model here to Hutchinson, Kansas, and we're going to do the same thing here. And I got news for you. I don't know. Maybe you missed that day in social science, but Philadelphia is not Hutchinson, Kansas. What works here will not automatically work there. And 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 you know what? And it might. It's not. Oh well, no place is. It's also. Um, <laughs> but it, it, but I think Waldo, yeah, yeah. I, I want to like riff off yeah, your yeah. point because one of the things that you bring up, which is so interesting is about health community and politics being local. And so much of what we're seeing nationally right now is this dropping confidence in our institutions. However, one institution that has not dropped that's staying steady and it's a higher one on the list is small businesses. And so, and I have a theory that it's that locality, that nimbleness. And if we can translate that trust into local municipalities and policy and civic governance and involvement, then that is, that could be like a really good thing. Yes, but that's a, so the playbook I think is right and dead on. Um, but uh, everybody has access to the playbook. So you just have to watch what's happened with uh, critical race theory uh, in um, school board meetings for school districts where it's not being taught anywhere, <laughs> but yet there's these huge uh, riots, right? And uh, the number of people in public health departments who have quit, just quit and left. They, they went to school for public health. They had a passion for public health. And because of all the local, all the national politics and how it manifested locally has, has made people kind of turn away from it and, and doubt the science. Um, yeah, well, I think that I think to the point there is increase in education too locally, because right now, you know, whenever I go to local, uh, whether it's a school board meeting or whether it's a city council meeting, um, the things that I'm hearing you know, uh, talked about in a manner where no one is staying up against them are, you know, uh, they're antagonistic to our basic foundation of science and logic in general. And so it's clear 
you know, I, I don't think that, you know, five years ago, two years ago, six months ago, maybe I was bemoaning this and being like, oh gosh, you know, why can't we all just be logical? Now I'm just like, cool, let's, we, we need to become better rhetoric. Like, like whatever your goal is, you can have the logic, use it whenever it works. But when you, it doesn't, then rhetoric is where it's at. And I'm not saying we become a bunch of sophists here, but I'm saying that we have to get better at persuasion. Well, also, um, we are in a, the, the worst thing can happen to an age of logic is uh, a wave of cynicism. Um, it is good to be critical and to think critically and to, to not question for the sake of questioning authority, but to question, again, in a, in a <laughs> I'm going to jump back to my Ignatian roots, right? Is this, is this the, what is the best thing I can do right now? Is this the right thing to do? Is this the best thing to do? This is a good thing, but is it appropriate to the moment, Right. That is very different than being cynical. And, you know, I'll give you an example. So I, uh, so in my role and in, in, in Dash, and we haven't really talked about that too much, but, you know, part of what Dash promotes is the idea of multi-sector data sharing to address exactly everything that we've talked about to this point, right? To improve health outcomes and health equity in communities and for people to have, uh, you know, not just a fair chance, for the, the best, you know, life they can live. Uh, but the, you know, a, 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 the best chance that they can have. Um, and in some cases that means that they, you know, that you have to help some people more than others. Every, everybody does because everybody doesn't start in the same place. Right. Um, and so, uh, I, I, uh, have to go to conferences and, you know, talk to people and, and, you know, do the whole, chicken dance of, uh, presentations and, you know, trying to, to promote some of these ideas. And this last week I, was, I attended two different conferences back to back in different parts of the country. So I got to spend a little bit of time with, uh, cab drivers, uh, or, or, or cab drivers are, don't have to talk, they, they, but, uh, Lyft drivers apparently have to talk to everybody a lot. So, uh, I get peppered with a bunch <laughs> of questions, you know, why here, what are you here for? Uh, oh, what kind of conference is it? What do you, what, what, you know, what do you do? And as I try to, in a hundred words or less, explain what we've spent uh, the better part of uh, 45 minutes here uh, talking about, um, you know, immediately uh, several people will say, well, well, um, you mean you're just like taking people's information and you're you're just giving it to other people? I mean, immediately the cynicism kicks in and the distrust of you know the idea that people's information is being shared. And if you can, you know, so this so this is a sample of one over and over again. If you take that and you multiply it by a community that's never been asked anything just had stuff, you know, imposed on them. And now like, so wait a minute, what are you doing? Why are you taking my medical records? You can just share them with, you know, but if, I don't want anybody seeing my medical records. I don't want the, 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 you know, the Medicaid provider to know uh, how many jobs I, I don't, you know, I, 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 every time that my information gets shared, I, you know, I get taken advantage of. So I don't, I, I don't want my information shared. Even if you explain to them that we're trying to do this to coordinate your care, so it's it, it's better. You, you'll have easier, faster. Your, your life will be less complex. Um, 
there's a lot of distrust, right? So the critical thought would be, is this the best thing for me to do? Is this something I should participate in? But fear and, and, you know, being taken advantage of or just not, or being ignored, left out of things altogether has, you know, causes people to be cynical instead and, and, and protective and certainly of themselves because past experiences, but then of their families and their, their loved ones. That is such a great, um, opener to one of the questions that I was thinking about ahead of time too. And, um, you know, on that question of just familiarity and making sure that there's community buy-in and, you know, there's a reason why, you know, the, the reticence and the fear exists, you know, and it doesn't take long before you can, you know, find multiple examples of where, um, you know, folks are validated and having concerns about that data being used against them without their permission, you know, um, without any sort of compensation, acknowledgement, input. And that's one of the reasons where we are really big proponents of privacy enhancing technology, which by the way, like our very first prototype, you know, initial project was funded through a Dash Kickstart grant years ago. Um, I think that was one of the first times I, that we got connected with Dash. I thought this was going to be commercial so, for Simeo. It turns out it's commercial for Dash. Thank you. <laughs> it comes an, with a free amazing. ham, a free ham radio yes. handle. <laughs> <laughs> what you've been waiting for, and uh, and and actually, our um, last episode that we just recorded was with the partner that actually received that grant too. So we were fortunate enough to be able to work with them. So that's amazing, and just being able to have a technology that you can bring into a community that, by default you know, removes that personally identifiable information, still allows for that utility, the the benefit of, of using that data, but without actually, you know, getting to the identified level, which is really important. And yet, there still needs to be conversation at the community level. There still need to be folks at the table um, informing how the information is getting used because it's only part of the story, right? Um you know, understanding, well, what does that tell us? You know, just getting the data out there is one thing, but then how do you use it? How do you implement it? What does that mean? What context is not apparent? And so there's just so much there. I really appreciate, you know, all the complexity that you brought up. And um, and I would like to talk more, you know, about Dash and, and some of the work that you all are doing because, you know, case in point, with those Kickstarter grants and just the way that you all are thinking about how you create these networks of, uh, best practice sharing and just, just knowledge trading, right? Like, Hey, what, what, what did work in your community? You know, are there nuggets that we can take from, you know, Hutchinson, Kansas to other communities or elsewhere? And, um, and I'd be curious, you know, if you can talk a little bit about just that spirit of innovation at Dash and maybe how you all have considered using, you know, technology and the tools that you're developing, things like that, anywhere you want to go. But I just think that's an important dimension of dash that I want to be sure yeah. to highlight. So, um, so dash, uh, as I said at the outset, stands for data across sectors for health and, um, you know, words in your name should mean something and be important. Um, but they don't have to mean the same thing forever. Right. The sectors, when we talk about sectors, we certainly mean um, sectors like originally, I think when the, when the concept was introduced and the idea of sector alignment was promoted by, um, 
you know, some elements funded out of Robert Wood Johnson and other, you know, big philanthropy. The the sectors that they were talking about were healthcare as the big driver, right? And and you know, Jessica, I think that you and I would take for granted the 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 health care technology story. I think it's it needs it it it, it would bear a little insight here to an explanation for this general conversation. But the other big sector that they were talking about was public health. And then this weird, cloudy, nebulous, not quite definable, squishy, uh, opaque other sector was the social sector. And if you ask 10 people what that meant, you would get 10 wildly different answers, right? Um, but you know, the one thing that was clear was healthcare has a ton of, of data and, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff that we can do around there and we got a bunch of people working on it. Uh, public health is, you know, uh, people think it's been around since, you know, the Romans, it hasn't, it's, it's, it, it really, it's about a hundred years old and, uh, it hasn't really changed that much since in a hundred years. Um, and, um, and and that's not a good thing, by the way. I'm not I'm not saying that it's stable because of that. Um, <laughs> it's tried and true. No. We solved it. <laughs> no, we didn't. Are you sure? I mean, COVID really made me think public yeah. health was doing really it's well. It's more like we we built it and we forgot that it was there. Hasn't we haven't done a software update yeah. for a hundred years, y'all? Um, what do you expect? Yeah, just 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 hit no. Just hit, if it asks you to update, just say say no. Um, never restart public health. Uh, <laughs> But um, but and 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 so that's where that idea started. And the truth is that there has to be far more diversification in at least one of those topics and clarification, which is you know the social sector. Um, in in the, the the idea of what is the social sector, um, you know, just as uh, as simply as you can state it, it, you know, anything that helps people and is that has, you know, some kind of governmental funding or philanthropic funding. So a lot of the 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 things that we talked about when we were describing, you know, the different factors in a, in the social determinants, those, you know, those things could fall into that idea of the social sector, uh, you know, uh food assistance. Uh, medical insurance, you know, so when we talk about food assistance, yes, you know, programs like SNAP or, or what used to be called food stamps, um, you know, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, you know, programs that, that have, um, that provide assistance beyond what people could access based on their own resources. And some of that comes with philanthropy through, you know, big organizations like Salvation Army and uh, homeless shelters and, and things like that that are non-governmental. Um, and, and some of those things come through um, governmental programs at the state and, and federal level, and on some, in some cases, the metropolitan or county level. Um, but then there's these things that, are, that were not in that original kind of squishy definition or people didn't immediately think of like education. Well, you know, that's, no, that's just, that's another, that's a whole other, well, it, it is another sector, but it, it's one of those sectors in the social determinant. So you start thinking about, it isn't just the, the helping sector, but 
all these sectors are the other sector, right? The, so we have to expand the definition of social sector. Uh, a, a real common, uh, um, and, and the reason we have to do it is because the people who suffer and, and need assistance and uh, that, that are lack health equity in this country, don't do it. They have the, uh, the um, annoying habit of having multiple problems at the same time. If they could just take one problem, if they could please, it would be so much easier for everybody. If you could just, can you just be hungry today? I can't deal with like taking care of all your problems. Just be hungry today. And tomorrow we'll talk about the fact that you don't have a house or a place to live. Um, and then on Wednesday, we can talk about your diabetes because you bring me all these problems that I can't, I can't solve them. Um, but that's, that's how life is. That's life is socially complex for a lot of people in the United States and in the world. And the, we have to have the ability to look at the complexity and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to get you something to eat now. Okay. And then we're going to, as soon when you're done eating, we're going to get you something to wear. And while that's happening, we're going to make some phone calls and see if we can get you to a homeless shelter uh, so that you can get some rest for a few days. And then maybe we can see about getting you enrolled in some of these programs. That is how care, complex care works. But those five things I just described right there never talk to each other. So the idea of multi-sector data sharing is that if you try to take care of, you know, one of those problems and then in a silo, try to take care of the next problem, it looks like this, right? A person who I just described that really complex situation can't access the first help, right? They can't get somebody to eat right now because they're starving unless they can show that they're eligible for Medicaid. Well, they have no idea if they're eligible for Medicaid. They never fill out an application for Medicaid. Maybe they did fill out an application for Medicaid and they got accepted, but then it got terminated. But they don't know where that proof is, right? So they're going to have to go somewhere and wait in line to, to speak to somebody about getting you know, a document that proves that they were eligible for Medicaid or that they were on Medicaid and they're applying for it again. But in order to fill that paperwork out, they need a proof of identity. So they need their birth certificate. So come back when you have your birth certificate and we can fill out this paperwork to apply for Medicaid so that you can go to the place where you can get assistance for these other programs. So that person has to go to city hall, wherever, or write to you know the place where they were born to get a copy of their birth certificate. If they don't have an address, right? If they're homeless, they can't ask that public health department in San Diego to send them anything because they get there's nowhere to send it to and sometimes they'll send it to a, a homeless shelter address but by the time it gets back they may not be there anymore and they have to figure out where they're going to borrow the money if they need to pay a fee to have that copy processed when they get back so you can see so i'm going to just stop there because it, it just again could drag on for three hours but that's how these things happen so the idea is that if we can figure out ways to create trusted information frameworks and networks where a limited amount of information can be exchanged and trusted from one trusted source to a, a, another trusted site and say, do you have a copy of this person's birth certificate? Yes, we have a copy that we verified on record. I don't need to see it over here. Then. I trust this source and I'm going to move this person on to the next thing. So we've just jumped a major hurdle in time and effort to get that person closer to care. 
the, the more of those areas you can bring together, the better. How would you, you know, when you're working in these spaces, right, where there's so much that's changing all the time, right? I mean, you just talked about the complexity of being a human, right? But also, you know, as, as we learn more, as we um, shift the way we do things, as we take that information, as technology evolves, like how as an organization that is right in the center of this and somebody who works in this too, like how do you form an identity when things are changing so, all the time? Yes. Yeah. To casual question. Right, right. Another right. softball so, yeah. so Dash <laughs> is not a technology company. It is, it, it is not a company, right? It's an initiative. It is, uh, it, it, we don't do direct service, right? So there is no, we have no connection to individuals and their problems. We work at the system level and, and what we're trying to do, right? Our first set of uh, awards that we gave out to communities was looking at communities that were already doing some of the things that we were trying to promote and studying them, giving them money to, to actually do it comfortably, right? So they could afford to actually move beyond the talking stage to the doing stage and then documenting what they were doing. And then taking that and trying to fund smaller communities or, or, or smaller awards to begin to do some of those things, right? So planting more flowers from the original seeds of the, of, of the, of the first apple, um, and then and then taking that information and sharing it and doing webinars, doing presentations and creating affinity groups and mentoring programs with the first people that, you know, we funded so they could. And, and so the idea really is knowledge. Uh, uh, it, 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 we're not a research organization, but a, a learning organization to learn, to uh, try to translate that learning and to share it out and, and educate communities. And also state actors, right? So all those, everything that we've talked about has a role in communities' health and, and improving health equity. So figuring out how do we how do we translate this into different types of you know educational to, you know pieces appropriate to different the different roles that, that act on communities as quickly as I can. That's. Man, that's that's awesome because like Yuval Harari talks about in like what tools do you need in this era right. to be able to redefine yourself and reemerge with the changing and he always goes back to a few things one empathy and the others like learning basically you got to learn exactly. how to keep learning We're learning right? organizations yeah. that's amazing I know yeah. So you want to ask your question real quick and then I, I mean I, mine's probably I gotta like get some scotch for that just <laughs> kidding this is. This is an energy drink similar to, you might consider like a purple cow or a orange steer. I'm not going to say the name because they don't sponsor us. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> they don't. They really don't, though. Yeah. I don't know why Just they would. Clarify. You drink enough of it that you should be a shareholder um, anyways, but go ahead. <laughs> no, totally. So, like, I'm... I just want to... This is... I'm going to caveat this, so this is probably totally can get edited out. But I'm curious, just even as recent as yesterday... Someone in the space was talking about how, well, gosh, data sharing should be kind of a solved problem because we have HIEs. So why don't we just tack on, I know in your body language is what was happening in my head too. Why don't we just tack on social determinant data onto HIEs since they're already solved the problem, right? Just yeah, curious no, if you have so any they, thoughts um, on H, Look, HIEs have increasingly uh, over the last uh, 10 years, try, you know, Acknowledge the importance of social determinants, acknowledge the importance of social needs and their impacts on, on whole person health or population health, 
right? And and that has really been very integrated into the whole health information schema, right? And we have things like the Gravity Project that are trying to take, I'm going to use a bunch of acronyms here, they're trying to to, to take social needs and and create ICD-10 codes or the, the health level seven language that's specific to healthcare information in order for it to go in just like a, a diagnosis code would. And, and so that these aren't like notes that nobody could ever trigger anything off of. So a lot of work's being done in that space, um, but it can't, it, it, it can't be everything to everyone, right? It has a very specific uh, role that it was designed to do. And healthcare is very complex and it's very complex in the United States maybe more complex than it needs to be. That's why it costs so much. Um, but <laughs> it, it, uh, to, to expect that HIEs or health information exchanges could do all of that is really a, a misunderstanding of, it's like saying, well, uh, you know, I'm going to deliver pizzas in this Ferrari. It is a car. You could, you could do that, but that's, it wasn't designed to do that. And you certainly wouldn't want to take a dump truck to the Indy 500, right? It, it's not designed for that. Um, now we have, we do have these things called, uh, 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 community information exchanges, and they are working on, on solving these same kind of problems, uh, in communities with, with community information, social needs information that using a lot of the same approaches that health information exchanges have used for health information. Um, we have, and we have a lot of other folks innovating in other spaces in more boutique uh, approaches and solutions, but the technology is not the important part. We're not going to solve any of this with technology. It's all about communities, listening to communities, partnerships, collaboration, building trust both ways, and uh, you know, and creating equitable ways for that interaction to take place. Data can be shared that way um, safely, and the, and human privacy and 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 security ensured. Um, and, and yeah, technology has a role, but it's not the, the technological stack is not going to save that and, and no, you know, cool app that you get on your phone is, is going to replace human trust and, and, and collaboration. Thank you so much. This sure. is fantastic. A lot, so much good stuff that came out of this too. So, um, yeah, just thank Absolutely. you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you, Waldo, very much. Okay. If you listened to our first episode, then you would have heard this segment. So what is it exactly that you do? And <laughs> We also a, are wondering. We also wonder this. There's a whole theme about identity here. Uh, and, and we just think this is a really fun opportunity to highlight our team members and have them ask their friends, their significant other, somebody in their life to describe to them what they do here at SMEO and what we do as an organization. This is for purely selfish motives so we can get better descriptions on our website and have better things to talk about at conferences. In our uh, defense, historically, we've been focused on building great technology infrastructure and good processes for community data and not so much about how to talk about it. Exactly. So now we have the benefit of having an amazing team that's been helping us a lot with that. Um, and uh, so we wanted to have an opportunity for you all to meet more of our team members yeah. as well. So big thank you to Thomas and his partner, Althea, for jumping in for this episode segment on what is it that you do? Over to you, Thomas and Althea.
Hi, my name is Thomas Norman. I'm an engineer here at SMEO, and with the with me, I have my wife Althea. So, Althea, one of the things that we are asked uh, to ask our significant others is, "What do you think I do for a living? What do you think I do at SMEO?" I think that you do computer programming for nonprofits, a very I- noble cause. That's a very, very good answer. Do you, you now you've done some programming yourself as well. You you do kind of dabble in JavaScript, which is fun. Uh, but you're in you're in news media, I should clarify. You're in, in news media, so not programming as a uh, as your primary occupation. So knowing what you know about programming, what specific things do you think I do? I'm, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a fastball there rather than a, a slow pitch. Speaking in an entirely different language, like if I were to just lean against the keyboard and all the keys would start working all at once, that is what a lot of the computer code looks like to me, especially when it's zooming by on the screen really fast. <laughs> do you do you know any of the tools that I work with? I've mentioned them before passing, but I don't know if I really talked with in depth with you about any of them. I am not familiar with any of those tools, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you're you're familiar with with JavaScript, and we do use JavaScript uh, extensively uh, in what we're doing. So, um, who knows? Maybe someday, if you if you get a, a big love for programming, you could join us uh, as an engineer. That'd be that'd be fun. Enjoy spending time with you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy spending time with you as well. Um, it, the camera doesn't show it, but we're actually in the in the same vicinity of each other. So it's um, it's funny. I can hear her through my headset and also in the ambient noise of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, second <laughs> second question: um, What is it that Asemio does? I think it's basically an extension of what you do, which is do programming for nonprofits. <laughs> That's uh, that's another good answer. It's it's uh, one of our service lines is we act as kind of like technical guidance for nonprofits that may not have the resources to do that. Um, we also do data analysts, uh, data analytics. Mm-hmm. So we take the massive data sets that they've generated and in a very safe and secure way, preserving everyone's privacy, we analyze those data sets so that they can make policy decisions and and better tweak their uh, service offerings. It's it's a lot of fun, and it and it's it gives you that warm fuzzy feeling, like you said, um, to absolutely to do that. It is a good thing to help others, both professionally and personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I had Charlotte here with us uh, to answer these questions as well. I don't think she has. Uh, Charlotte's my our our ten year old daughter in um, school right now. In school right now. And I don't think she has any concept of what I do for a living. She is blissfully unaware of the complexities of of computer programming and of working with. I don't think she even has a concept of of what data is. Honestly, <laughs> I'll sit her down right here later, and you can ask her the same questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we may have to do that. She knows what you do. She says, "Mommy works for the newspaper." That's great. <laughs> So um, uh, this is this is a different question, and it's not in the list normally. But I thought I'd ask it anyway. Since you work mm-hmm. for um, the, the news media, have you seen a semio anywhere in the local news media? Has have we popped up anywhere? I'm just kind of curious. I don't actually know the answer. 
When I was scrolling through my Facebook feed, I saw an episode of an Asemio podcast pop up on my Facebook feed. So that is the last place that I saw Asemio. Good, good. That's what hopefully this will be. This will be on that po- that very podcast. So you may see it scrolling through your Facebook feed soon. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much for answering my questions. It's I, I had a feeling you you had a good idea of what we do and and um, how we do it and how I do it because um, I've been working for Asemio for a, a good long while. Yes. So good answers and thank you for talking with me. All right. Love you. Love you. <laughs> thank, thank you, Thomas Althea. That was amazing. How do you think she did? Great. Great. Thank you so much, Althea. Super appreciate it. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you um, in the office, on the show, and as a supporter of Thomas. Absolutely. Because sometimes writing software, you need support. Indeed. Emotional. Indeed. Data therapy. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Waldo and we want to be sure that you don't miss future opportunities to hear from many of our other great community partners. So be sure to subscribe and thank you again for listening. 